you are sovereign in our lives. We thank you, God, that we can trust you. We thank you, Lord, for your wisdom. We thank you, Lord, that you created everything according to your wisdom. You're carrying out all your plans according to wisdom. You care for us and love us according to your wisdom. We want to just learn how to trust you. We want to learn your word. We want to learn your nature so that we can be better disciples, so that we can fall more in love with you and be worshiping you according to truth. So thank you, Lord, for this time, and thank you for each one here. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand your word, help us to learn about you, and we thank you, God, that you are faithful. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. So you have your handout. We are going to be talking about God's wisdom. What is God up to? Well, I'm Ed Fedor. I'm an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Community Church, the other Cornerstone, in uh, Mayfield Heights. So, I'd be, has anybody been to Mayfield Heights for the conference over there? Paul, you been there? Paul's an elder at Cornerstone. <laughs> We're glad he's been there. And, um, and Marty, we're on staff together, Marty and I, and, and uh, Pastor Armand, you heard first session. So um, we're all one big happy family. And you, who is here for Marty's session? The one? Just a couple? Okay, we're very different. It's going to be a different kind of a style this time. Anyway, but I'm assistant pastor, I, um, and I've been on staff there for about 10 years, and um, all that. So let's look at... Uh, our outlines. Uh, I don't know if you're, if you're like me, but uh, sometimes I ask myself, wow, what is God up to? Have you ever thought about that? Yeah. What is God up to? I mean, some things happen, and they just perplex us. They bewilder us. They make us question, what is God up to? And it seems like God isn't involved. We don't see God's hand in it sometimes. We don't recognize what God is up to. And sometimes it's not until after the pain has ceased and we look back do we see what God was doing. And then we look at it and we marvel. Sometimes things are mysterious and we will never know what God has been doing, what he was doing in the midst of it. But there's no more important or weighty topic as we've been talking about all day than understanding the nature of God. And I'm sure you've seen, you already know the importance of correct, biblically accurate picture of who God is. We need to have a good picture of who God is according to Scripture, not what we think. Because our thinking is faulty. Man's wisdom is faulty. And as we get a greater grasp of who God is, what His nature is like, His attributes, what He is up to, what He's trying to accomplish... What that does is it helps us to rest. It helps us to have peacefulness in our soul. Because we'll be trusting in who God is and what he is doing. So we're going to be talking about the wisdom of God. And and, and I have to say it's very difficult. And it's even probably not a very good idea to try and isolate one of God's attributes. And, you know, just kind of look at it as as one piece. Because all of God's nature... His manifold perfections all work together. They're a unity. They're all connected. And they're all at work all at one time. And you can't really logically separate one attribute of God without looking at some of the others. 
Because God is not just loving. God is not just merciful. He's also just, and he's holy, and he's wrathful. He's jealous for our devotion, and he's good, and he's absolutely sovereign, and he's almighty, and all of those things all at once, all the time. And everything God does is always in perfect accord with all of who he is. All that he is doing is always according to his manifold perfections of his complete being. He doesn't operate according to one attribute at one time. So, um, so as we talk about the wisdom of God, we can't talk about wisdom without also touching on other things like God's sovereignty, his omniscience, his love, his goodness. All those elements are connected in some way. So in, and in order to understand where I'm coming from in this workshop, you need to have an idea of, where, idea of where I'm coming from on a couple of things. Number one, I believe the Bible says that God is sovereign. Two things you need to know. God is sovereign. He is firmly in control of his creation. Things just don't spiral out of control without God's knowledge, without God's hand in it, that kind of thing. God is sovereign. He has decreed his sovereign will in eternity past, and circumstances are not random. Number two. Number one, God is sovereign. Number two, God is active in his creation. God is active in his creation. We don't believe in deism. Okay, God didn't just wind up the universe, let it go, and it's spinning out of control and doing whatever it's doing. God didn't take his hands off the wheel. God is actively and personally involved in bringing about his perfect plans. He's actively and personally involved in every believer's life. Your life, my life, your counselee's lives, he is personally involved. And he is working out his will personally. Those two things we need to keep in mind. And one thing we need to remember and remind our counselees of this is that when we look at our circumstances and we try to understand what God is doing, we need to remember that it's not all about us. We need to have this firmly in our head. It is not all about us. We're not the center of the universe. God's main concern is not to make sure that our lives are comfortable and cushy and um, free of all problems, free of all illnesses, free of all tragedies. That is not God's goal. But that may not be the perspective of our counselees. We are naturally self-centered. We're naturally self-focused. And what we care about is eliminating all of our problems and maximizing all of our blessings. Right? Isn't that kind of how we tend to be oriented? And our counselees tend to be oriented? That's our natural bent. Problems are bad and must be eliminated. Happiness is good. And it must be pursued at all cost. And some may be coming from a background where they've been taught that Jesus' atoning work on the cross has bought us health and wealth and prosperity. That it naturally flows from God's 
atoning work of Christ on the cross. Some are taught that, and they believe that. And that it's God's will for us that we live in an abundance in every area of our life, and that's just the way that it is as a Christian. Well, that's not only incredibly unfaithful to, to the biblical text, it's a huge setup for great disappointment with God and with us and with the church. So we may need to take some time with our counselees to reorient their thinking to give them a biblical framework about how to think about their lives. And here's something we need to learn well. This is God's world. This is God's world. Okay? I don't know, who, who was it that said Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think I heard him say it. You, you guys know Martin Lloyd-Jones? You ever heard him preach? He has a Scottish accent, this big Scottish accent. I'm not going to try to do it. This is God's world. God existed in eternity past. And in the eternal counsel of God and the Godhead, he created all that exists. He created all of it, including you and me, for the very specific set of purposes. We're not isolated, autonomous islands of self-centered ambition. God is at the center of his creation. And he has created it with certain purposes in mind. There's, we're going to look at two. Two of God's purposes. One purpose of God's is his, and his, I would say it's his highest purpose, is to exalt and magnify his own glory. And that's in your outline. Exalt and magnify his own glory. The purpose of God to exalt and magnify his glory is absolutely every place in the scriptures. I don't know if you, if you caught that principle, and as you're reading your Bible, you will see it everywhere. He does what he does for the for the sake of his name, for the sake of magnifying his glory, that others may, be, may see his glory. We'll look at a few texts. Um, numbers 14, 20. You don't have to turn now. We're going to go too fast through them. The Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live, and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. We see in Psalm 19, 1 and 2, very familiar passage, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. God created the heavens and the earth and all that he created to magnify and exalt his glory. We look at creation and we see God's hand in it. We see something about God and his greatness in what he's made. He did that on purpose. Isaiah 43. He says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. We think God created us because he's nice and he loves us. He does love us and he is nice. But he created us, he said, for the purpose of his glory. Later in Isaiah 43, the people whom I formed for myself, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. We look in the New Testament, we see in Ephesians chapter 1, very important passages, 
He says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, we see God's foreknowledge, we see God's foreordination, his predestination of us to be saved. In him he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Verse 14, The promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Even our salvation is not simply to give us benefits. Our salvation redounds to his glory. Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul said, everything was created by him and for him. Everything was created by him and for him. God created everything so that his glory might be seen. He created you and I for his glory. He saved you and I to to magnify his glory, the glory of his grace. God's glory is God's highest purpose. And that's, that's what everything he says and everything he does That's what it all aims at. In the end, the highest, highest goal. The glory of his great name. So that's his purpose. And here's one thing we need to remember. That purpose is good. That is a good purpose. And we need to not only see that as the highest and best and ultimate purpose of everything, but we need to embrace it and make it our personal, our lifetime mission to bring him glory. We need to adopt this as our purpose. Here's another purpose, and you'll see why all this matters as we keep going. Another prime purpose of God is to sanctify his people. Sanctify his people. And there's a third purpose that I'll touch on in a second. I didn't I only put two there. But really, sanctify his people. As we are sanctified, we bring him glory. So it's really a subset of purpose number one. But this is a huge deal of what God is all about. And I'm not going to take a lot of time on this because you know this as biblical counselors, those trying to help one another. God doesn't just save us. He doesn't just create converts. He's making disciples. And a disciple is a follower, a learner of a teacher. And we are to grow up into the righteousness of Christ. He sanctifies us positionally, but then he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. God calls us to grow up. We're not to be spiritual infants. And God's purpose is that our manner of life must change. We are to look more and more like the Son Jesus. So God's purpose is to exalt and magnify his glory, sanctify his people. And a third thing I'll just mention, because we're going to hit on it as we go a little bit, is um, to, to carry out his plan of redemption. So in, in a systematic way, unfolding his plan of redemption. So you'll see that as well. But let's hone in a little more specifically on the wisdom of God. Wisdom... A couple of definitions there. Knowledge of what is true or right, coupled with just judgment 
as to action, discernment, or insight. Another definition, the ability to think and act utilizing knowledge, experience, understanding, common sense, and insight. So what you see here is two broad elements. You have knowledge applied to action. Wisdom is truth applied to living. And in a biblical context, it's the application of God's eternal truth to right living. Or living that accords with God's commands. Living that pleases, honors, and glorifies God. The application of God's eternal truth to a life that pleases and honors God. Now, when we think about God... We think about God's wisdom. God's wisdom derives, number one, from his perfections, because God is perfect in wisdom. All of his nature we see in perfection. So it derives from his perfections, his eternal decree, his perfect omniscience and foreknowledge applied to his sovereign actions. So we see God's wisdom derives from his perfections, his eternal decree, his perfect knowledge applied to his sovereign actions. So we see knowledge applied to action. So what God purposes, what he plans, what he does, derives from his perfections, his perfect nature. So everything God does is wise. Why? Because God is wise. Let's look at a few texts. I think I have them written on the back side. Proverbs 2, 6, and 7. Is that there, 2, 6, and 7? Okay, it says, For the Lord gives wisdom. The Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright, etc. The Lord gives wisdom. So what? who's the source of wisdom? The Lord. God gives wisdom, knowledge, understanding, because he is wise. Stands to reason. It's Proverbs chapter 3. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped the dew, etc. God used his perfect eternal wisdom to create the heavens and the earth. He created everything according to his perfect wisdom. Job chapter 9. Job answered and said, Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in, in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. God's wisdom is unmatched. You see the contrast between us and our you know, worldly fleshly wisdom trying to contend with God and his wisdom. Can't be done. God's wisdom is unmatched. Daniel 20, or chapter 2, verse 20 and, and, and following. Daniel answered and said, Blessed is the, be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. Interesting. Wisdom and might. God has perfect knowledge of what should be done and almighty power to carry it out. And then you listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 11. It's a fascinating 
passage, because he's concluding here, he's, if, you, if you remember Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11, he's, he's going through God's plan of, of redemption with, the, with Israel and the Gentiles, and the whole plan that Israel has been set aside for a time, and, and the Gentiles are come in, and when the full number of Gentiles comes in, then you see Israel back in the picture. It's just overwhelming Paul, the wisdom of God, and he says, Romans 11:33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and, his, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? There is no one like God. His wisdom, his knowledge are unmatched. They're incredible. And no wisdom of man even comes close. In fact, you can almost think God laughs at our wisdom like, come on. Even th- you see this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 2. Chapter 1, he says, Paul said, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Even God's smallest, tiniest bit of wisdom is way wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. I like what Tozer said about wisdom and the knowledge of the holy. By the way, if, if you've never read the, not, read the Knowledge of the Holy, that's an, an outstanding book. It's not very big, but man, is it, it's pithy and juicy and salty. Never described that way before. <laughs> <laughs> here's what he said about wisdom. He said, wisdom, among other things, here's a definition, is the ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. It sees the end from the beginning so that there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless precision. He's talking about God's wisdom here. The ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means. Then he goes on to say, all God's acts are done in perfect wisdom. First for his own glory. And then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. So you see, wisdom is not isolated. Again, you see, wisdom and goodness. And all his acts are as pure as they are wise. And as good as they are wise and pure. Not only could his acts not be better done, a better way to do them could not be imagined. An infinitely wise God must work in a manner not to be improved upon by finite creatures. That is a heavy set of statements. And if you ponder those, I bet, how many of us really believe that? If we understand God's nature, we must come to believe this. Because as we think about circumstances that are going on around us, we have a tendency to think, you know what, I'd probably do that a little differently. I don't like the way this is going. I think I'd probably do it differently. But again, God is sovereign. God is actively involved. He is wise. And what he is doing is wise. So what is God up to? God is actively bringing about his ultimate purposes. We looked at a few of those. Bringing about his own, exalting and magnifying his glory, sanctifying his people, bringing about his plan of redemption. 
God is actively bringing about his ultimate purposes. And then it says, as it regards individual people, God is sovereignly, actively, wisely, and lovingly working out his perfect plan to sanctify his children and advance his divine purposes for their good and for God's glory. If you want to sum it up, that's how I see it. It's something we need to remember ourselves and we need to remind our counselees is that there's never just one thing going on in our circumstances. Okay? Never just one thing. We see the horizontal, we see the temporal, the relational things going on in our lives. That's what we see. But if you look at 10,000 feet, God is working in it. God is working in our circumstances. There's always a big picture part of the story. God's view of the story. And what God is up to is he is carrying out and bringing about his divine purposes. And he's doing it personally in our lives, through our lives, the interactions of our lives together. He is bringing it about. He is actively at work in everything. Now, there may be one goal or one purpose in something that he's doing, but there could be dozens of other things that he's also doing in the middle of it. <coughs> so I'd like to take a, uh, some time here to look at some examples in, in the scriptures, see what we might learn about God's wisdom. Now, you remember Joseph. You guys know the story of Joseph, right? I hope. It's in uh, Genesis 37 to 50. In fact, let's read those 13 chapters right now. I'm just kidding. We're not gonna read those There's no time. Let's sum up. Who said that? It's one of the, the Princess Bride. Have you seen the Princess Bride? Let me explain. Wait, there's no time. Let me sum up. Think about the horizontal picture. Now, as I'm going through, I'm just going to hit some bullet points. As I'm going through this, think about Joseph's life. Think about these purposes of God, what God is doing. And then we'll talk about it at the end. The horizontal picture. Here's the set of circumstances in the story. Jacob had 12 sons. And it says that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Okay, dads, don't do this. Okay, don't tell one son, I love you best, and demonstrate that. Bad idea, Jacob. So Jacob gives Joseph a special coat of many colors. The brothers saw that dad loved Joseph best and they hated Joseph. Right? They had this resentment against this son that dad loves best. So Joseph had a couple of dreams that indicated he was going to be ruling over his brothers and Joseph wasn't too wise in sharing that with his brothers. Hey brothers, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to rule over you guys. Twice he does this. Didn't learn from the first time. Yeah. So they didn't like that very much either. So they, they, uh, they find a way to isolate Joseph. They throw him in a pit. They sell him to the Ishmaelites as they're walking by. Hey, I have a great idea. Let's sell him. We won't kill him, but we'll sell him. The Ishmaelites sell him to Egypt as a servant. And then they tell their father that Joseph was killed by a wild animal. Joseph, or Jacob is, is uh, very upset, naturally. 
Joseph comes to be the right-hand guy to Potiphar, captain of the guard. For Pharaoh, he grows in influence. Then he's falsely accused of, of seducing Potiphar's wife, and he's thrown in prison. So now Joseph is in prison. He was in a pit. He was sold. Now he's in prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dream and gets out of prison, and Pharaoh puts him in charge of all the land of Egypt. So God gives Joseph insight into Pharaoh's dreams, seven years of plenty, then seven years of, of terrible famine. Okay. So he puts Joseph in charge to put in place a plan to store up tons of grain during times of plenty so that they'd have enough for the times of famine. So, then Joseph's family comes to Egypt. They live, they establish. God blesses and they grow as a nation uh, in Egypt. So, we look at the story, story horizontally. Okay, What's going on with Joseph's life? Some rough things, right? He experienced some rough times. So Joseph is probably thinking, man, this is terrible. I thought, you know, this was going to be great. You know, I was loved by my dad. What is God doing in the life of Joseph through those circumstances? We see the smaller picture in Joseph's life. Okay, Joseph was a little puffed up at the beginning, right? And he finds himself in prison in a pit. He's working in Joseph's life, right? Probably giving him a little bit of humility. He's working in his character. Uh, he's, his purity before God was tested as he's resisting Potiphar's wife. So you see God working in his character, affirming his character. God was blessing Joseph. We also see the big picture. If you look up 10,000 feet, he was growing and preserving and blessing the nation of Israel, right? And especially since there was going to be the seven years of famine, Joseph comes into Egypt and he puts this plan in place. God gives him insight. So he's preserving the nation of Israel. He's preserving the family line that's going to ultimately lead to the Savior. So we see God at work here. If we look at just the horizontal picture, it looks bleak, it looks rough, it looks tough. But God was at work in this in, in a magnificent way. So God was most definitely in it, under it, behind it, in the whole story. And then we see at the end in Genesis 50, Joseph's conclusion, he said, he knew this, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Which means, God meant something in this. God was working in this. It's not like, oh no, what can I do to make Joseph's life turn out okay? God was in this. And it's hard for us to see, how could God be in such trouble and behind it? When you look back, you see how God was in it. Look at Jesus. Jesus another example. Obvious example. He was the promised Messiah, right? We see this in all the Old Testament scriptures and the prophecies. This coming king, we see it in Isaiah 9, the government shall be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it. Here is this coming king. He's prophesied. He's coming. He's going to be the deliverer. He's going to be the son of the Most High, it says in, in Luke 2. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. We see this in Luke 2. We see this in Isaiah, the Old Testament, the prophecy looking forward. You see it in Luke 2, and now it's becoming. We see, oh, the Savior's here. He's here. And this was a quote from Luke 2. Here they're thinking that he's going to deliver us from the... From, from oppressive Roman rule. Our king is here. So he began his ministry. He taught the people of the kingdom of God. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He delivered people from demons. Yea, Jesus, Messiah, king, he's here. And then he's falsely accused. And then he's arrested. And then he's scourged. And then he's crucified. And his followers are going, our king, What's going on? God's perfect plan is being ruined. Right? That's the horizontal picture. That's what we see in our circumstances. They killed our Messiah. He was going to be our king. Imagine how desperate they must have felt like, what is going on? And Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. But it wasn't a tragic end to a good story. It wasn't a horrible accident that was out of God's hands. This was the plan. This was plan A. This wasn't like, oh no, the circumstances changed. I've got to come up with something. This was God's plan. It was, it was the Father's will to crush him, says in Isaiah 53. God offered his own son as the once-for-all sacrifice for our sins the fulfillment of all the sacrificial system, all the pictures and types we see in the Old Testament, the Passover, we see he's the fulfillment of the Passover, the, the serpent on the pole, the suffering servant in Isaiah, the inheritor of the throne of David. God was at work bringing about his plan of redemption. We even see in, in Acts chapter 2, Peter said, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So Jesus was delivered up, crucified, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. We saw the crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but we didn't see this God planned it thing so clearly until later. And he was even telling them, I'm going to be killed and crucified, and three days later I'm going to rise. They weren't getting it. He had to be crucified. His blood had to be shed. That was the plan. God planned it, he prophesied it, and he accomplished it according to his amazing wisdom. And according to his love, and holiness, and justice, and mercy. All those factors are at work. So you see, the horizontal picture didn't look very good, but from 10,000 feet, God was accomplishing his purposes in it. Now, we could talk about Paul. I thought of a few other examples. We'll try and go, go through a few. Uh, talked about Paul. He was ministering. Remember, he was having great impact for the kingdom of God. Paul was arrested. He was put in prison in Rome. So here's Paul sitting in prison. God was using him in great ways. 
and he's sitting in prison. Oh no, can't do any ministry. This is terrible, right? We see Paul's horizontal vision could have easily been despair. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? The interruption of his ministry. Was that the whole picture? No, it wasn't. Even Paul knew that. You see in Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. His imprisonment in Rome has served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul has a divine view, a divine picture of what God is doing, even in his imprisonment. God was at work, clearly. You see this in, the, in the, Paul's thorn. He said he had a thorn in his flesh. Second, Second Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Why did he have a thorn in his flesh? Paul hated this thorn. It was terrible. It was painful, whatever it was. Right? It was a painful set of circumstances. How many times did he pray? Did he, did he want this to stay or did he want it to go? He was praying, God, take it away. How many times did he pray, does it say? Three times he prayed, God, take this away. And what was God's answer? No, no, I'm not taking it away. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm going to sustain you and strengthen you and embolden you in the midst of your pain. So Paul's perspective was, God, take away the pain. And Jesus is saying, nope, it's there for a reason. And I'm accomplishing my plan in you, through you, in that pain. And Paul was learning that God's grace was sufficient for him in the pain. I love the story of Lazarus. He became very ill. So Mary and Martha come to Jesus and ask him to come and heal. Lazarus, Jesus, my, you know Lazarus, your friend? He's very sick and he's probably going to die. Come quickly. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he rushed. No, he ran to help his friend. Is that what it says? He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He was waiting for his friend Lazarus to die. Wow. Think about that. That circumstance is kind of troubling. That's puzzling. What is Jesus up to? Is Jesus really that cold of a guy? Did that seem wise? Did it seem wise? No, not really, right? You would think that you would do what you can to help your friend. It says he wept over Lazarus. Now, did Jesus have a bigger plan in mind? Yes, he did. He even stated it up front. 
which they didn't quite catch apparently. He said earlier, before he died, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. Again, God's purpose to be glorified in everything, life and death, creation. So they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. God's plan of redemption, right? That's part of his big purpose. He said these things. He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped in cloth. The horizontal picture was pretty bleak. It was sad. It was bad. It didn't look very wise. Jesus stayed away. He could have come, but he stayed away. His plan didn't seem very wise or very loving, but God was wisely and lovingly at work on the big picture. He did act in love toward Lazarus and the sisters, but he was also using this situation to advance his kingdom. So God is always at work. He is working in a whole host of ways, ways that we may not necessarily see. He is wisely and carefully accomplishing his purpose of bringing glory to his name, advancing his plan of redemption, and sanctifying his people. That's what God is up to. And it's good and it's wise. So let's look at some implications A, as believers, we need to view our lives from God's perspective. View our lives from God's perspective. And that will transform our thinking. We need to help our people, our counselees, to see that it's not all, you're not the center of the universe. What your plans and everything that's going on in your life is not the whole picture. God is working. We need to see it from God's perspective. We need to consciously transform our thinking from best equals, my comfort, convenience, success, and achievement. My comfort, convenience, success, and achievement. That's what we think is best. We need to transform it to best equals God's glory, God's eternal kingdom, and my sanctification. God's glory, God's eternal kingdom, and my sanctification. This is God's world. We have a natural tendency to think that life is all about our achievement and success and convenience and comfort and happiness. That's the American dream. That's what we're fed, right? It's all about us. Well, it's not all about us. God defines what life is all about, what success is. He created us. He knows what's best to bring us real joy, true joy, and lasting happiness, and life purpose. So, we as believers need a fundamental transition in our thinking. And this is big. Transitioning our thinking from us to God 
our good and God's good is really pretty big. That's a fundamental transformation. But we need to be thinking along those lines. Otherwise, everything is woe is me because my problems are big. It's so vital to peacefulness and stability in our lives. B, we need to learn to trust in God's good purposes. Learn to trust in God's good purposes. We trust in God's purposes for our lives because they're wise and good, really, even though they may be painful. You know why the purposes are good? Because God is good. Again, we see God's nature is not one element. It's a combination of a ton of elements. A good God creates good purposes and plans. God's commands and his promises and his activity are all tied to his perfect nature. So we should trust in what God is doing. Why do we trust in what God is doing? God is always perfect in being God. We trust in God's purposes because we believe he knows what he is doing. If we really trust that God is wise and he knows what he's doing, that will settle our soul, even when it's painful. We have to help our counselees learn this. We trust in God's purposes because we know that he is faithful and he is almighty and he knows everything and he loves us anyway and he knows what's best. And here there's a vital connection. We have to understand this. A vital connection between God's wisdom and our faith. God's wisdom and our faith. God is perfectly wise, but our circumstances don't always seem like they're very wise. We look around and we see pain we look around and we see trouble. We look around and see things we don't like. But we need to understand by faith that God is perfectly wise. And he knows what he's doing. And we can give him full faith because he is fully faithful. We can give him our full faith because he is fully faithful. Tozer said, faith doesn't have to rely on physical evidence to trust. The testimony of faith is that no matter how things look in this fallen world, all God's acts are wrought in perfect wisdom. If you have a Bible, we should probably open our Bible, right? Hebrews chapter 11, let's look for a second. Hebrews chapter 11. Think about the life of Abraham. We'll look at uh, Hebrews 11:8. It says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. God said, okay, uproot and go to a place he didn't know where he was going. I'm going. God said it. It doesn't feel wise to me, but I'm going because I trust God. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
Look at um, verse 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tested. Okay, remember? God promised and made a covenant with Abraham. You know, your descendants would be like the sand of the sea. Your descendants. His wife couldn't have children. She, her, her womb was closed up. She couldn't have children. So finally, he said, no, I promise you. I promise you. Remember, I promise you. You're going to have a child. So Isaac is the child of promise. They have Isaac. Right? And then God says, go sacrifice Isaac. Okay, promise. Okay, through my loins. Uh, descendants is like the sand of the sea. Okay, and, and go kill your son. Sacrifice him. So Abraham goes. Remember the story. Doesn't seem very wise. I don't get it. But Abraham trusted God enough to obey. Of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Okay, God told me to sacrifice him. So I'm going to sacrifice him. He can raise him from the dead. See how he's reasoning here? He's trusting in God's power. He knows God enough that God can raise him from the dead if he wanted to. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Remember, he, before he slayed his son, there was the ram in the thicket. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob, etc. So we see, even in, in a picture like Abraham's here, the circumstances didn't seem wise, but he trusted in God, who was wise. A third implication, look for God's hand at work. In every trial or challenge, look for God's hand at work. Remember I said God is personally involved in your life. He's involved in your counselee's lives. He's not hiding. He's not aloof. He's actively involved. And I firmly believe, because I've seen it in my own life, that God does not waste anything. The circumstances we're going through are not wasted. We can waste it if we're missing it. If, we're not, if we don't have our... God's perspective glasses on, we're going to miss stuff. God wants to use every event, every trial, and every heartache, and every joy to teach us, and mold us, and shape us. He's molding us, and sanctifying us, and he wants to demonstrate his love, and his providence, and his glory in it. And one fact that's a little bit hard to grasp, hard to accept, but also hard to miss, is that God often works through pain. He often works through pain. His sanctifying process often is through pain. There are certain things we cannot learn apart from pain. And pain gets our attention almost like nothing else, right? And our counselees need to know that. And almost any part of sanctification is painful by nature. Because by definition, God is breaking us of our deep-seated self-will. So it's painful. But God is working in it and through it. So we need to walk through life with our eyes up. Right? Okay, I see my circumstances. My head is down. I see my circumstances. Eyes up. What is God doing in this? We need to ask ourselves, what is God up to? Where is God in this? 
We need to train our people to think that way. Where is God in this? What is he showing me about his character? What sin is he revealing in me? Okay, this is causing pressure. And what's getting squirting out? What's squirting out when the pressure comes? Is it righteousness? Is it praise? Is it worship? Or is it more sin? Impatience and anger when I'm pressed. See, God uses this stuff to show us where we need to grow. What should I be learning in this? And sometimes we won't see what God was really up to until after we've emerged from it and look back. You guys notice this? I see what God was doing. And we look back and we see God's hand was clearly at work. And when we see God's hand at work, we can rest that he is acting and dealing with us wisely. He knows what he's doing. A fourth implication. Worship God for his eternal wisdom, his majestic glory, and good purposes. Worship God for his eternal wisdom, majestic glory, and good purposes. This is really, really important as you think about what God is up to, what he's trying to do in us. When we get to the place where even when things are difficult, that we can get on our knees and thank God for what he's doing. And thank God for the trials that are accomplishing his purposes. When we can worship God in the middle of that, that'll stabilize our soul. That'll give us a rest. That'll give us a sense of peace. But we only worship God according to truth. What do we know about God? We know that he's wise. We know that he's powerful. We know he's faithful. It doesn't make the pain disappear. I experienced that firsthand in my own life. It doesn't make the circumstances change, but it builds a sense of peacefulness in our life. You remember Job. I'll just end with this. He lost his servants. You remember the whole series of things? He lost his servants. Then he lost his livestock. Then more servants and camels. He lost his children. One right after another, they kept walking in. Oh, Job, here's what happened. Oh, Job, here's what just happened. Everything was crumbling right before his eyes. What was Job's response? Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and complained. What does it say? He worshipped. Job worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And even if our worship feels forced, as we worship God for his wisdom and his perfect nature, God will give us a sense of peacefulness. So God is perfectly wise. He's actively at work in our lives. And in my life, the counsel these lies to bring about his eternal purposes, and his purposes are good because he is good. Right? Let me just end with Tozer. With the goodness of God to desire our highest welfare, the wisdom of God to plan it, 
and the power of God to achieve it, what do we lack? Surely we are the most favored of his creatures. Amen. Let's take a, a moment to, to pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness toward us. Thank you again for your manifold perfections. Thank you for your wisdom and how you're working. Help us to trust you. Help us to help our people, our counselees, to trust you because you're trustworthy. You are worthy of all praise and honor and glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Do you guys have any questions, thoughts came to your mind? Situations? Yeah, hey, one, I'm going to pass these around. I found this on the web. We'll get to you in a sec. Um, Twelve benefits of afflictions. I thought this was really insightful, and maybe you can use it. You might want to, it might be helpful in your counseling scenarios, how God works through affliction. Yeah, go ahead. When talking with Christians, I'm going to appreciate the expression, the road to glory is paved with trouble and pain. Yeah. Yeah, isn't it true, though? We would probably prefer it another way, but often God does use and work through pain, almost like no, no other way. He does work through other means, of course. The other is looking at even Joseph's life. I wasn't wise as a father to show favoritism, yet God used yeah. to put Joseph where he needed to be. Exactly. When we're dealing with our counselees, sometimes it's, we try to fix the problem fast we can, but God can redeem that. And who's to say God isn't orchestrating all of that for his purposes? Anything else? Or if you were, as you were studying, uh, can you give me a distinction between God's uh, omniscience and his wisdom? Well, omniscience is the fact that God knows everything. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He knows everything immediately, perfectly, um, and that, so as you think about knowledge compared to wisdom, wisdom is applied knowledge. So knowing everything that there is to know applied to successful living, applied to action, is wisdom. Yeah. And one's action and one's being? Um, wisdom is applying knowledge to action. Right. Knowledge is, is the, the knowing of what truth is. Okay, well, thank the Lord, and may God use us. Amen.